Please be seated. It's a joy to be with you here this day. I've always enjoyed any time I've had the opportunity to visit Sutton. Because it reminds me of my hometown. Mine was even smaller, though. Back in the day, I think there were 450 people who lived in the village, and most were out on the farms, right? A lot of dairy farms, and raising cattle and beef, and so I'm, it's quite a familiar place in that sense. A lot of fond memories, they say. Well, we had uh, daylight savings time change, didn't we? We got an extra hour, so I get to preach for two hours, right? <laughs> See how many people are left by then. <laughs> Well, we're looking at the Word of God this morning in Isaiah chapter 6. It's probably a well-known passage to many of you. Uh, This marvelous event that took place in Isaiah's life of God bringing him into his very presence. We need to, in understanding it, see the historical context in which this portion of scripture was revealed to us as verse 1 notes that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Scripture records that King Uzziah had had a a very long and prosperous reign during his reign as a king in Israel. It had prospered politically, militarily, and possessed a great deal of material wealth. But sadly, as the case may be, and it often is, we're told that during that time, the people had become self-righteous and proud. Simply described as Isaiah dwelling among a people with unclean lips. They were absorbed in materialism, pleasure-seeking, caring only for themselves rather than serving God and serving their neighbor. Sound familiar? The culture was in decline, and it was becoming less and less unified and weak. And after a few years from the end of King Uzziah's reign, this had really come to almost disunion and On top of it all, nearby you have this great warring nation of Assyria. I don't know if you've studied much about Syria, but oh my, I want to talk about a warring nation. My wife and I had the privilege to go to the British Museum and take a tour of Near Eastern um, history and uh, the artifacts that they have there. And if you ever do get an opportunity, go to the British Museum. It's just marvelous. Maybe that's my love for history, I suppose. But it tells us a lot about what men are about. And different cultures and people. And Assyria was seeking to impose its great power upon the nations all around it, even to conquer the world, as it were. And now it was on its way towards Israel. 
in the year that King Uzziah died. And so it was a time of great national and social crisis. And what Isaiah needed, like everybody else at that time, was some way to face the crisis facing Israel and its future. And so do we. It is at that time that Isaiah sees the Lord as it is recorded. This marvelous event. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now that's a marvelous event indeed. Now, most of us recall when terrorists attacked the Twin Towers in New York City. September 11, 2001. How could we forget for those of us who are alive? We simply call it now 9-11, right? What people don't think of at that time is that we as a people, a nation, had become arrogant and proud. We were at a place where we had known prosperity and peace so long that we actually had the feeling of invincibility. This could never happen to us, something like this. The evil of the world is out there. But 9-11 brought it here in a very horrible and graphic way. In a sense, it was a wake-up call for our nation. For a time, it appeared to have wiped away our illusion of invincibility seen in our homes, on the televisions. The collapsing of those towers was just hard to see and handle. The reality of it. But do you know what happened following 9-11 that many people don't know about? Is that the churches on that following Sunday, by and large, by and large, were quite full. Even some reported being overflowing with worshipers. Was that because our invincibility was exposed? Well, if it draws men to God, then it's a good thing. Now, of course, 9-11 is over 20 years ago. And where are we as a people today? Have we lost that sense of vulnerability? Are we back where we feel invincible, immune from all these things? Especially for many who look to the government for everything. But wait, when you listen to the media, what do you hear today, though? Across the spectrum, from left to right, we hear a consensus that we, as a nation, are in decline. Things are happening in our day that we could never have imagined would be going on in America and thought throughout the world. I was a young boy in the 50s. I couldn't conceive of these things taking place that we are not only doing publicly, but promoting. The wickedness of man, does it know no end? 
for a sense that many have is one of impending doom. In my own thoughts, I have thought that how long can we as a nation continue on? There will be disunity. There already is. And it's in this situation, not unlike our own, that God appeared to Isaiah. A similar time and point in history, like our own, that God revealed himself to Isaiah in a most marvelous way. And it wasn't a time where we had all this technological advances that we now possess. You know, it wasn't CGI or, you know, AI, artificial intelligence. It was God calling a man into his very presence. A real event that took place in time and history. It's that same kind of setting in time and history that we need to be aware of in properly understanding this passage even more. We as a people need to see the Lord. We need to behold Him in all His glory. Only the light of Christ shines brilliant enough to drive away all the darkness, all our fears, What did Isaiah see? That's what we look at this morning. He saw, first of all, an awesome God. And then he he saw a God who was holy. But he also saw a God who had purpose, a goal, a mission for his people. Let's consider these verses. In verse 5, we read these words. Isaiah coming into the presence of God. That's the setting. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here we see that Isaiah is in awe of God. Wonderment, amazement, astonishment, admiration, even fear. All these things. Think of the psalmist. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Oh, how we desperately need this to once again be a God-fearing people that is health to our souls, health to our nation, to any people. When the wicked are in authority, we are told the people mourn. But when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Why? Because the righteous see God as God. And they extol Him. And they're not ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. When's the last time you remember being in awe of something? You know, I remember the first time I stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Wow, it, was a, it really took my breath away. It's so majestic and 
awesome to see this, this gash in the earth so huge and to stand on such a precipice overlooking it. But that's nothing compared to what we should experience in knowing the living God all throughout Scripture. In the Old and New Testaments alike, there are stories of miraculous signs and wonders that point people to the living God and cause people to be in awe of who He is. In Acts, in chapter 2, we read in verse 43, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, it doesn't say that those miraculous signs and wonders caused people to be in awe. Rather, the awe of God came before the miracle, which says something about the way the people were living. You see, being in awe of God implies that we have a respect towards Him as well as an attitude of worship and admiration as we approach this you approaching this place every morning and wherever I am in worship we always should have hearts that are prepared to be in awe of God reverencing him worshiping him that word literally has the idea of bowing down of prostrating oneself before him in humility, recognizing who we are, but even more recognizing who He is. We come to worship to meet God, hopefully. Not just to meet one another, that's wonderful. Christian fellowship is just beautiful. I enjoy it, I love meeting Christians all around the world. You know, you'll meet strangers sometimes and you soon know they're a child of God. And your spirit bears witness with their spirit, it is so. And so coming here, we want to have that awe and that, that sense of being in the presence of God. We're not just talking to each other, I'm not just speaking to you, I'm speaking in the presence of God. And I'm mindful of that. Be so careful that the words are said are faithful to His word. Now, Isaiah needed to be in awe of God if he were to faithfully serve him. And notice the progression of what was going on in, spiritually in Isaiah. At first he's, he's overwhelmed. Woe is me. Even devastated. But then he, he is marvelously cleansed and regenerated by God. He went from being broken to being healed. From hopeless to hopeful, from destitute to blessed, even from death to cleansing and life and life eternal. Some of us know that vividly in our own experience. I know for myself it was such. I was so far from God. Out of the 50s came the 60s, right? That was the 60s generation high school and then drafted in Vietnam and introduced to the world of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. A decadent world. 
a world that almost destroyed me following it. But God in his mercy revealed himself to me and lifted me out of a miry pit and set my feet upon a solid rock. And that rock is Christ. I needed to see Christ sitting in a jail cell. I read through the New Testament four times. And I began to see Christ. And then, you know, I would make these promises to God. I got out of jail, sometimes early and marvelously. I said, oh Lord, you just get me out of this one. I'll be the best you could imagine. And I went back like a dog returning to his vomit. Because it was me doing it. And then it got worse. It's like the Lord says in the gospel that unclean spirits came back. You know, many fold. You can't toy with God. But I thank God that eventually he kept me to that promise. Going back like a dog returning to his vomit, I got arrested again for drugs and had to go to jail. And during that time, I was converted. And God in his amazing providence, because the word of God came to bear in my heart and mind, and the spirit of God stirred up my spirit to cry out to God. I came to realize I could not save myself. You know, in, in, in some of our, our uh, they were parties, you know, drug parties. We'd sit around, you know, smoking dope and talking about religions. That was popular in the 60s. Talking about this religion and that. And I knew the gospel from a child. And I would argue for Christianity and for Christ. And I mean, I would argue, you know, vociferously. All my and one time, just prior to my conversion, one of the one of the fellows in our group he says, "Wow, man, how come you're not a Christian then?" You see, I could argue for it, and they knew I wasn't a Christian. I was a, living like a fool and a pagan like them, and that stunned me. God used that to stun my heart. Yeah, you're not a Christian. You're not following me. Because you, can, you, you always think you can do it yourself. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I couldn't pull up anything. What I was pulling up was more time in jail. The route I was on. One time I faced 20 years. Mind you. God, you know, arranged things for me to get out. They changed the marijuana laws in Michigan and lessened the offenses so it started a domino effect where I got out. And it was after that time that the Lord saved me. It was reading the scriptures. And I had, I had gotten arrested again and I had to go before the judge. And in God's providence, you'll like this, Scott, the probation officer who interviewed me had, was a policeman and he was known as the singing cop. He would go to churches and sing gospel songs, especially for young people. And, you know, when I went before him to be interviewed, I didn't want to say, oh, well, I'm a Christian now, so cut me some slack. And I said, no. What I'm charged for, I'm guilty. I deserve whatever the judge gives me. 
and we talked. I said I'd gotten a job. I wasn't doing drugs anymore, and I wasn't. You know, I, I was converted then. But I didn't want to play that. I even told the people in the church, don't come to my sentencing. I don't want that. I don't want to play upon any sympathy or whatever. And because I, I went before the judge. I said, hello, Mike. He said, hello, Dennis. We we're quite acquainted by then. Small towns, right? <laughs> I'd have probably gone before Ted here, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I said, you know, you know me. You know, I've been doing these things. I'm not doing them anymore, but I know you have no reason to believe me. And he said, I don't know why I'm going to do this, but I'm going to give you 40 days. Now, I could have gone much longer. He said, you got a work permit. I'm going to give you 40 days with permission to go to work and go back to jail. And if you make those 40 days, the rest will just be probation. And God in his grace did. And in those 40 days, I read through the Old Testament. You see, and I share this with you. Because in that destitute state, what did I need? To lift me out, you know, we, you know, I'm not against rehab for people in drugs. Sometimes that's a good thing, especially it's the Christian one, especially, you know, because then you have hope. But I was given hope in the gospel. I began to behold Christ for who He is, my Savior. I cannot save myself. And Isaiah recognized it. Of course, you you recognize how lost you are. Whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. That must be in every believer's heart in one sense or another. It may not be exactly those words, but unless you recognize you're a sinner, you won't know that you need to be saved by grace. The law is that schoolmaster to lead us to Christ because it teaches us that we're sinful and that we cannot keep God's commandments. And that we desperately, desperately need a Savior. As this nation needs a Savior. And it's not in the White House. It's not in Congress. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of His Father on high. And who's one day coming for sure to judge this world in righteousness. And there will only be sheep or goats. Only those two. Those who know His voice, hear His voice as the Good Shepherd. Now, of course, beloved, the Lord must enable that. Remember how Jesus said to the Pharisees, You have ears, but you hear not. Eyes, but you see not. You don't have the capability in you naturally. And so Jesus taught, Except a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. It's not naturally. And that's what I had to come to. Why aren't you a Christian? Because I had not come to that place, you know, where I had recognized my total helplessness as well as wickedness. And unless God cleansed me, unless He came with that coal like with Isaiah and took this man of unclean lips, cleansed him and regenerated him how could I be saved then unless he did that great work 
And the impact of the knowledge of who God is. It's the impact of the gospel. It's good news. It's a God who saves. And a God who saves sinners. God didn't love us because we were the best. Why, we have this heritage or that heritage. You know, people are lauding Jews and, of course, we're Gentiles and German and Irish and Italian and all this. It's none of those things. It's not by flesh and blood. Read John chapter 1, verse 12. But you must be born of God must be that great work of grace in our hearts and lives to everyone who believes. It's without exception. Think of the impact of the good news as revealed in 1 Peter. We'll turn to that. 1 Peter, in the very first chapter, reading just verses 10 through 12. And Peter's talking about the salvation as it was revealed in the Old Testament times, like in the times of Isaiah. And he says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering to things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. You know, sometimes with our children and rearing children, we almost think about, well, for them to turn out well, we approach it in a, in a mechanistic way. Well, do so much Bible reading, be catechized, and, and be disciplined, have prayer time. We think of a lot of the mechanics. But never forget this, beloved, to pray for God's Spirit to give them ears to hear that gospel message. There have been many who have read the Bible and not converted. The Spirit of God must work in them to give them that longing in their hearts to know Christ, to know His voice, to hear Him, We're told in 1 Peter 1 that the angels are desirous to look into the gospel. Literally, they have their hearts set on looking into the gospel. And that's what you need to pray for your children. And your children's children. And many of us are grandparents. Pray that God's Spirit would put a desire in their hearts for these things. Because otherwise, it will just bounce off they won't receive it as it is the very word of God and they won't desire Christ there must be that work of grace in the heart beloved 
Plead for that. It's the best thing you can do as a parent and as a grandparent. Yes, you should teach them those other things, certainly. But without the Spirit of God, it will all be in vain. Some people wonder, I raised this child. You know, they always went to a Christian school or I homeschooled them. They're always a good kid. and They always went to church and they were catechized and then they go off. Far from the Lord. Why can that be? They need the Spirit of God to work in them. That those things they learned as a child, that's what happened to me. Came back to me. I learned a child. As a child in a vacation Bible school, a verse, except a man be born again, he cannot even see, as I quoted earlier, the kingdom of heaven, John 3, 3, through, and further on through 3, 6. And that's what I needed to know. Why I wasn't a Christian? Because I hadn't been born again. I hadn't been regenerated. I didn't have the Spirit of God working in me. Giving me a heart for Christ. Oh, the gospel is infinitely rich. And to plummet's depths, you need more than an education. You know, a college degree won't necessarily do it. Might help you be able to read. But do you have a heart that's been regenerated? How do the Old Testament prophets put it? I'll take away from you. God prophesied to you. I'll take away from them a heart of stone and put within them a heart of flesh. Read Ezekiel, the Valley of Vision, of God's regenerating power to take. Ezekiel, look at that valley of bones. I'm going to put flesh upon it. I'm going to cause it to rise up. And every person that's saved has been a dead man before, or a dead woman. We're born in sin. We're born in death. We need to be born again. And that's, that's what you see early with Isaiah. And that's the need for our nation. We need an outpouring of the Spirit today like we have never seen in this nation. Because we are so far from God. So many places. Colossians, Paul touches upon the depths of the Gospel. Colossians 1, 24-27. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. But now has been revealed in his saints. Saint, what is a saint? You don't get a halo. It means you're set apart as the Lord's to do his will. And God took me as he takes every Christian. From delighting in fulfilling the lust of my flesh. To delighting in fulfilling the will of God. His commandments are written on our hearts. And we say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. You see, the gospel is awesome because our God is awesome. And Isaiah saw an awesome God. Holy, 
holy, holy in all his majesty. Oh, Julie and I were on a vacation once in, in northern Michigan. I said, where are we going to go to church this Sunday, dear? I said, I'm looking. The whole Reformed church is around. In this part, we were up in a pretty rural area. Oh, here's a community church. Well, let's try that one. Maybe it'll be good. And his text was this very passage. And it was horrendous. He reads the text and he says, You know, the problem with Isaiah was he had a poor self-image. I, I, did I fall off the pew, dear? Did you help me back up? A poor self. No, he had the right self-image because he had the right image of God in his holiness. What do the cherubim and the seraphim sing around God's throne continually? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The riches of the gospel is that it reveals to us the good news of our awesome Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul shares the impact of that knowledge in his own experience. Philippians 3.8 Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, literally dung that I may gain Christ. People are being destroyed by the love for the world in which we live. A lot of people won't follow Christ because they'd be embarrassed before their friends. You know, it's not popular. It's not cool. Thankfully, in your community, hopefully that's not as much of a, you know, a commanding way of thinking. Salvation comes from an awesome God and an awesome Savior. There should be no end of our awe and, and even fascination with knowing Him and knowing Him more and fully. Having an intimacy with God, even as your pastor is bidding you to do in prayer, speaking to God and in His Word, Him speaking to you and me. Those are the, that's God speaking. Another thing that we note is that God revealed himself to Isaiah as a holy God. Isaiah saw a holy God. There is none like him. One pastor said in New York City, uh, Tim Keller, he's gone to be with the Lord. And he said that after 9-11, being right in New York, he said their average attendance was 2,800 people. But after 9-11, it almost doubled. Over 5,000 people came that Sunday. Why was all those people there? Why were all those people there? Because time of crisis, some people know they, they well, go to church. There's something about going to church that, you know, I can find some comfort and maybe some hope. You've got a good name for this church, right? Hope Reformed Church. And this, this church should be a beacon to this community and to this state of hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope for the vilest sinner 
God saved prostitutes, tax collectors, drunkards, wine-bibbers, every sort of people, thieves. Save me. I still marvel at that. A wretch such as I am, even battling this heart, the world, the devil, and my own flesh. Sometimes I think my own flesh is the worst enemy I have to face. Of wanting to serve God and give glory to God in all things. That doesn't come naturally to us. We think first of ourselves. That's why Jesus, you know, with his infinite wisdom said, love your neighbor as yourself. You always make sure you get fed, you get clothed, you get sheltered, you get cared for. How about doing that for your neighbor? May hope church really be a beacon of hope. Not just in theory, not just in word, but in deed. You have many people in this community that don't know Jesus Christ. They've not really ever heard the gospel. They get the television and that version of it, which, you know, they, the preachers are fools and, and bigoted people. And, you know, who would want to be? I wouldn't want to be like one of those guys. You know, and Christians, they're, they're always pretty much, a lot of the TV and movies are, they portray them as the, the bad people. Let's portray the church in word and in deed as one of grace and mercy and hope for a hopeless generation. Suicide among teenagers is the highest in the record of our history, in the history of our nation. Why? Because they're hopeless. I mean, you're only living inside of a cell phone or a video machine, glued to it hours upon hours. It's not healthy for one's soul. But here we see God as holy, holy, holy. You know, no other attribute of God that I know in Scripture is tripled like this. You know, it's a triplicate, holy, holy, holy. Why? Well, because of emphasis. God wants us to know. He is a holy God. That means there's no other like Him. I was telling some in the Sunday school class, the Hindus have 139 main gods, but then they have an infinite number of other gods beyond that, so they don't run out. Well, what kind of a god is that? You know, and even, you know, picture I asked one when we were going around a city in Nepal, and there was a picture I kept seeing of this god, I knew it was supposed to be a god, you know, Shiva, which is a very vile god, if you study about him, he's standing on a rat. And I asked the, the fellow who was a Hindu, I said, why is it, what's with the rat? You know, and he said, well, that's God. I mean, that's stunning when you hear someone say that and they really believe it. But you know, it ought to be just as stunning when we hear the unbelief in this generation of our own people who deny the true and living God, who mock the Bible, mock what it teaches, just an antiquated old book full of men's, you know, stories and attempts to control people with religion. That's about as farthest from the truth as it could be. 
If men were writing the book, they wouldn't write it the way it was written. Men would have been glorified, not God. Men's sin would be hidden, not brought into the daylight. But here the seraphim acknowledge our God is absolutely pure. Absolutely pure. Now listen, this, this is scripture teaching us that if we've ever met the real God, the God of scripture, the God who has revealed himself in the face and in the person of Jesus Christ, you will say this about yourself. Woe is me. I'm undone in myself. I can't possibly save myself. I desperately need a savior. Woe to you. Now, when in, Bi- in the Bible, when that woe to you is used in other places, it's almost like, you know, the Lord said, woe unto you Pharisees. He said that n- number of times. It's like, it's like a curse to them. Isaiah used it in another place. Woe to you who plunder. Jeremiah, woe to you, O Jerusalem. Will you still not be made clean? And again, it's throughout the Old Testament. And then our Lord's most awesome pronouncement in Matthew eleven twenty one: 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then again in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites. These are curses. Not feel sorry for yourself statements. And here the prophet Isaiah is literally cursing himself. He's saying, I don't deserve to live. I deserve to die. Those are my just deserts. You know why people reject the doctrines of grace? Because they think they're better than they really are. That's why. They just don't want to deal with that first point of Calvinism. Total depravity. Doesn't paint a good picture of men, does it? But look what men will do. Beheading women and children in the name of their God. Of course, not the God of Scripture. Not the true and living God that Isaiah saw and came to know and who saved him. God reveals his holiness, which reveals our sinfulness, to cause us to cry out, Woe unto me! I am cursed by my own sin. I don't deserve to live. I don't deserve to be saved. There's no argument there. I don't even deserve to know the true and living God. And yet he chose to reveal himself to me. That ought to amaze you to no end. Oh, amazing grace. How sweet it is. And know what else Isaiah confesses. He says, I am undone. The Hebrew word means I'm falling apart. I'm devastated. I'm destroyed. 
And we have why Isaiah said he was done. He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. We all should be able to say that. Why? Why would he say that? Because he would say this? Because that Isaiah was a prophet. And prophets preached. And so he was known by the things that came out of his lips. But now he's come to realize the very thing he was known for. You know, just like preachers can get proud. You know? Oh, great message, pastor. Usually my response is, it's marvelous what you can find in the Bible. That's where it comes from. But now he came to realize the thing which he was known for, that great prophet, his lips, his mouth, was unclean in the presence of God. We could say to borrow a popular phrase, Isaiah was having an identity crisis. <laughs> I'll explain why. Once was a counselor at an elite school, an Ivy League school, and to get into the school, you, you basically had to have straight A's. It was that exclusive. But think of it when all these straight A kids go to this school. Is everybody going to be straight A's then? Somebody's got to get a B. For me, I was happy to get B's, but you know. But what happens with these kids who all their lives, their identity was being in being bright, getting straight A's, top of the class. And they go to this school and they start getting B's. Or, what? A C? How can this be? I can tell you one of the best grades I ever had was a C when I passed Greek that first semester. <laughs> oh my. But here, for someone who's used to straight A's, it can be devastating. Because their whole identity had been in what they were able to do and what they were able to achieve. And when that slips, it's devastating. People put their identity in their good looks. We're all going to get older. You know, and you won't always be that good looking as you were in your youth. You might even end up looking like me. Oh. <clears throat> Woe is me, I am undone. That's what we need to realize. And when you see the collapse of a nation, as, and especially for those of us who are senior citizens, it's hard. You know, I mean, I grew up when you saluted the flag and you, you stood for the national anthem and you put your hand on your heart and you were proud to be American. You were proud of our identity. And you were proud to be a soldier. When I was drafted in and run to Canada, it was only 50 miles away from where I live. No. Your nation called you to serve, you went to serve. But that identity is slipping, and that's hard to see. And, you know, it even questioned, I mean, Boy, if my commander-in-chief now called me to go and serve, uh, what they're doing to the military, they're spending more money on, on uh, what are they, sensitivity training 
for our different identities, you know, than they are for preparing them for combat. Isaiah, a prophet, a preacher, a person who's all about speaking, a man who uses his lips, but when he got into the presence of God, he realized that the one thing he was most proud of was a mess. And so he confesses, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's confessing his sin before God, saying, I am proud of nothing in myself. Nothing. And of course, we know it would be Isaiah would say, what? All our righteousness is as filthy rags. Spurgeon comments on this text. He said, A sense of the Lord's presence humbles even the best of men. We cannot see the glory of God and continue to glory in ourselves. Humility is an indispensable preparation for the Lord's work. Isaiah must first feel his sinfulness before the live coal can touch his lips. We must confess our sins if we are to be heard by God. And how do we actually know we've met God? Consider when Peter came into the presence of Jesus and saw him for who he truly was, the very Son of God. He says to Jesus, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. <coughs> Think of Daniel as recorded in Daniel 10, 16 and 17. And assuredly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me, nor is any breath left in me. Or the disciples, when the voice of God came from heaven, Matthew 17, 5 and 6, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. The word sinned is a Latin word for mission. And that's what concludes this section as far as we're going in the chapter. What we see here is not only a holy God, not simply a God who makes you feel bad about yourself, but a God who's doing something about it. God saves us for, with a purpose. Late John Stott once preached a sermon where he, he stated that God is a missionary God. His main point was that the minute Adam sinned, and thereby the human race went with him into sin, God went in his mission mode. And he came to Adam and Eve in the garden, didn't he? And he clothed them. That's God's character and nature. A holy God to visit man. And that's what our Lord Jesus did. 
John writes, and he uses the language, he tabernacled with us. And he made his dwelling place among us. Well, do you just think of some great personage came and moved to Sutton? You know, I don't know who that great person might be to you. We're losing some of them. But God sent out Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldees to make him to be a missionary to a people, if you will. Because God was going to send redemption that was greater than just Abraham, greater than just Abraham after the flesh, Israel. He was going out into the world. And he said of Abraham and gave him that covenant promise that he'd be the father. That's why he changed his name, Abram to Abraham, father of many people, great nation, too innumerable, more than the sands of the sea or the stars of the sky. And Isaiah, the final thing here, is that he saw God's purpose. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs on the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. You see, that has to happen to make someone fit to serve the Lord. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom who will go for us? And then I said, and here's the response of this man that had been touched by the grace of God to see his sinfulness and to behold God's majesty and glory and awesomeness. He says, here am I, send me. God sends a seraph with burning coals. No, I don't. Presume that anyone here experienced in the, in the same sense, but in a sense we must experience it. God must touch our lives and be a reality to us, not, not some abstract deity, some higher power as the world likes to call it. It's not magic. He's a real living God. Without beginning, without end. Jesus Christ really and truly came into this world. Here's the gospel. He was crucified, dead, and buried. But he didn't stay there, did he? Why? Because he was the Holy Lamb of God. And he had no sin in himself. He bore our sins. He took them upon himself. But it was not his nature. He was very God of very God. And the grave could not hold him. The righteous one of God. And he rose again in that power. And he gives that resurrection power to you and me. Because we like him shall never die. Oh, this body may quit one day. Let it go. You can have it. Why are we so afraid to die? Isaiah was ready to go. People would challenge me. How can you go to Pakistan? How can you go to... You might get killed. And I always jokingly say, I might get killed driving to Walmart to get a box of a tent. Depends or whatever you call those things. 
Not that I need them, folks. Yet. What do you want to, who do you want to, who's worthy of dying for? Of giving ourselves wholly for than our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. And a holy God a holy God. We're not holy like that. We don't have it intrinsic to us. Our sacrifice can never compare. Even if we do give ourselves dying on a mission field or dying going just to visit a neighbor. Whatever it takes. If we've been truly touched by the gospel, that's God's firebrand. The gospel good news Jesus saves if we've really been touched by that then all of us should be ready like Isaiah to say here am I send me not somebody else not Fred not Larry not Sally not June me I can't send them I don't have that authority me Missionary, the best missionaries come from the church. Those who have been saved and, 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 and kind want to serve the Lord, give themselves holy because they know what He has given for them. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, not righteous people. He didn't come to heal those who were well, but those who are sick. He knows our infirmities. Oh, that glorious passage. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but like us was tempted in all things, yet without sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Oh, beloved, give yourselves holy to Him. Plead to Him with him if if you've not really sensed his presence in your life don't let go wrestle with him like Jacob until if he has to break your thigh and make you lame that's okay whatever it takes I have one of my children that's wandered from the Lord and I pray to the Lord Lord whatever it takes if you have to take everything from him his health his wealth whatever to bring him to your feet, to the foot of the cross, then do it, please. Better that, you know, this body perishes than the soul be cast into hell forever. Oh, let us pray that the Lord God you know, is meeting with us in our lives, in our homes, and in this particular body of Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, O oh Lord our God, that you're not a God who is afar off. You have tabernacled with men in the flesh. Paul spoke of this as that great mystery, that incarnate God in the flesh. It's, it's, it's too much for our minds even to truly comprehend. We don't see this ordinarily. Then again, you're not the ordinary God that men fashion out of idols. But you are the true and living God. And by the power of your breath, you spoke all into existence. And it's by your power 
and the power of the gospel that we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because that gospel presents to us Jesus Christ who is willing to die for sinners. That's simply stated. Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, all ye who are burdened, and I will give you rest. He bids us to come. Lord, put it into our hearts. Everyone here gathered that Oh, we would be most willing to come into your presence often. As much as humanly possible that we can. We thank you, God, that you are a God who dwells with men. You are a God who reveals yourself by your spirit and word. And thank you that there's hope for this nation, this generation. And we certainly who know you do not have to be a hopeless people, for you are the God of hope. And Jesus, you are that blessed hope. And you're coming again, and you will restore all things. There will be a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, and where you are the light of our very existence. And we pray that that light would shine brightly now, even in our hearts in our minds and in our lives, to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. And now, Lord, hear us as we pray together that prayer that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, I guess I'll take this. Thank you, Scott. Do you want power?